0: Jay Rosen is moving this week, so I'm joined by my very special guest host, Christy grant Park.
1: What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
0: Some of the stories Christy and I look at this week include we take a deep dive into the President Biden statement on corruption, what it means for the compliance professional. We take a look at a couple of different board issues, meeting minutes, and does a board need a people committee? We take a look at two CHAD diplomats, or government officials, charged with money laundering in connection with uh, bribery and corruption by a Canadian company. We take a look at the Caremark decision and what it means and how it has evolved for boards of directors as well, all on this week in FCPA with special guest host, Christy grant Hart. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and welcome to This Week in FCPA, episode 256 for the week ending June 11, 2021, the Biden on Corruption edition. You are about to be entertained beyond belief because I have a special guest host this week, Compliance Christy herself. Christy Grant Hart is sitting in for Jay Rosen, who is moving this week. So uh, Christy, welcome and thank you so much for taking on the guest hosting role this week.
1: I was so honored to be asked. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Thank you, Tom.
0: So as I mentioned, Jay is moving uh, and Christy is going to join me and we're going to take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories which caught our eye. And we're going to begin with President Biden's statement on corruption. And I'm just going to read the statement. Um, It reads, strengthening the resilience of rights respecting democracies is one of the defining challenges of our era. Corruption eats away at the foundations of democratic societies. It makes governments less effective, wastes public resources, exacerbates inequalities in access to services, and makes it harder for families to provide for their loved ones. Corruption attacks the foundations of democratic institutions and drives and intensifies extremism and makes it easier for authoritarian authoritarian regimes to corrode democratic governance. Corruption is a risk to our national security, and we must recognize it as such. Today, I'm issuing a national security study memorandum on the fight against corruption to establish combating corruption as a core U.S. national security interest. In this memorandum, I will direct I am directing departments and agencies to make recommendations that will significantly bolster the ability of the US government to combat corruption. The United States will lead by example and in partnerships with allies, civil society, and the private sector to fight the scourge of corruption. But this is a mission for the entire world and we must stand in support of courageous citizens around the globe who are demanding honest, transparent governance. Fighting corruption is not just good governance, it is self-defense. It is patriot, patriotism, and it's essential to the preservation of our democracy and for the future. So there is a lot in there. Uh, I wrote a series of blog posts on it. Matt Kelly wrote about it in Radical Compliance. Alexander Raghi wrote about it in the FCPA blog, Rick, Rick Messick in Global Anti-Corruption blog, and Jessica Tiltman also in the FCPA blog. Christy, I thought we might take some time to unpack a little of this I've tried to focus on what this means for the compliance professional and the corporate compliance program. But I have to start with this is the the most emphatic uh, statement by a president on the fight against corruption since the FCPA was signed into law back in 1977. And I was extraordinarily uh, inspired by this. How did you feel when you read this?
1: I think the same. I love how it absolutely lays out the case for why this is so important. And I think, frankly, sometimes many of us may want to print it out and put it up to say, listen, this is what we are actually doing. At the core of our career in corporate compliance is stopping these ills and being part of that movement. So I think more than anything, the the almost aspirational nature of it and the positivity with which it frames what we are doing was incredibly powerful.
0: So, the, um, in addition to saying the U.S. government would fight corruption, and clearly we have been fighting corruption since the enactment in the, of the FCPA, what also intrigued me and in fact, thrilled me was that he pointed out that the U.S. enforcement couldn't do it alone. There needed to be civil societies involved and the private sector, who are people like you and me. What do you see this means down to uh, both our level, Christy, and those that we work with, the CCOs, the compliance professionals, and corporate compliance programs?
1: I hope that it renews the sensibility that there is um, almost a public private cooperation that has to happen and that is being endorsed in the administration. But there's a flip side of that, too, which can be very positive, and that is that for, for many compliance officers, they're dealing with boards and C-suites that are motivated primarily by fear, and frankly, the fact that there is a um, recognition that this will be a priority for the administration and for the Department of Justice, and one would assume uh, that this will have teeth and that this will have resources put behind it, and that can frequently give gifts to the compliance officer that can say, look, we have in full effect, (laughs) this is going to be a priority. We need to pay attention to this. We need to properly resource it. And frankly, it dovetails so beautifully with the DOJ um, evaluation guidance that when you look at that and and say, this is what they're going to ask me. And I'm telling you right now, don't listen to me. The president of the United States is telling us this is a major initiative for the Justice Department and for the administration. We need to take steps now to make sure that we're doing the right thing, or you could be talking to them about why you didn't, so let's do the right thing now. I think that it can both be incredibly beneficial for those that feel motivated and driven by the positivity, and frankly, those who only listen to fear. I think that both can be really, really powerful from this statement. What do you think?
0: Uh, yes, to the all, all of the above, and I would only add, Christy, that uh, in addition to the statement, he issued a memorandum, which I didn't read, but I've linked to it in the show notes. And in the memorandum, part of it specifies that I think there was a list of eight departments and agencies he specifically called out to provide a written detailed plan within 100 days of how they were going to uh, implement this fight against corruption. So, It is beyond the Department of Justice, it's Homeland Security, it's Department of Treasury, it's the Federal Reserve, it's Securities and Exchange Commissions, it's the CFPB. Uh, So we're going to have a larger number of agencies, and I frankly think this means fighting domestic corruption as well, which is something many compliance practitioners haven't focused as much on as they have international because of the FCPA. So I just see this as, as a huge positive, not only to fight the international scourge of bribery and corruption, but to move forward uh, the goals uh, and aspirations of people like us in, in the compliance space going forward.
1: You know, I think that's really interesting, Tom, what you just said there, there, you know, I lived in London for nine years. And I think that when you do the kind of travel that you and I've done to do training, there's often a sense of, well, the U S never looks at itself. Right. And so frankly, I think that having internal um, government agencies that are focused not just externally on prosecution, but looking for those problems internally gives more credibility to the entire fight.
0: Uh, so, Christy, let's uh, look at some of the other stories uh, for the rest of the week. What do you have up for us first?
1: Perfect. Well, the first story comes from Lloydette by Morrow in her FCPA blog, in the FCPA blog, and it was titled. From a former UK prosecutor, don't get caught in an endless cycle of internal investigations. And I have talked to Ladept recently. She's absolutely fantastic. If you haven't uh, met with her, she's an ex uh, serious fraud office, SFO prosecutor and senior crown prosecutor. So really knows what she's talking about here. And her point here is that organizations frequently move quickly between investigations and other investigations for two reasons. The first is obviously to get the resolution for the business and employees. And the second is the fear of a regulatory or law enforcement agency coming in to do the investigations. But her point really is that the motivation is only important if we are making sure that something comes out of this, right? because she's seen organizations where they have investigation after investigation, and really they're not ever looking at the bottom. Why do we have these investigations? What do we need to do essentially to prevent needing them again? So she goes on to quote the Edelman trust barometer, and it's finding that the people who they surveyed expect business leaders to make changes rather than waiting for governments to impose change. Right. So in her experience, there's an over-reliance on investigations creating the need for change, and that it's almost lazy governance waiting for something to go wrong in order to change what needs to happen. So in her words, organizations need to focus on long-term solutions, and they can do this in three specific ways. So the first one is to start asking more questions. So the types of questions she brings up are the things that are in your classic ethics and compliance survey, right? What are their perceptions of individuals of senior management? What do they think of the culture? Is there good accountability? Um, you can, of course, do these things in your own, you know, survey monkey, survey any place if you feel confident. You can have external firms do them, but this information is so useful and For me, it immediately sings, hey, DOJ guidance, right? In that guidance, one of the big questions was, do you know how your employees feel about whistleblowing, about um, the whistleblower hotline? Do they know about it? Do they know where it is? Do they feel confident reporting? So her advice to ask the right questions really dovetails with other guidance we already have. The second thing she says we should focus on is communicating findings to stakeholders. And, you know, I'm an attorney and I know that there are so many attorneys that just hate this idea, this kind of radical transparency. Um, But within the limits of what makes sense, she says that, listen, people who know an investigation is going on want to know what's happening. So they should be communicated to in a clear and considered way. So she says this should extend to all employees who are aware of the investigation. Now that is a broader uh, number of people than a lot of companies would be more happy to share information with. But her point is that people will be waiting to see how the senior leaders respond. And she highlights the need to continue the communication throughout the process and not just at the end. And her third long-term solution is to re-examine the strategic objectives of the organization once the organization has finished the investigation so they can change them based on the findings. This is that difficult work, right? She notes that in the ethics study 2021 from Principia Advisory, all of the people that were surveyed, 93% of those leaders said that integrating ethics into decision-making is critical for the future success of their businesses. And she closes by saying that now is the time to do the deep work required on a cultural level to impact the business. So I've seen this uh, before where we have investigations that can act almost as blockers to say, oh, we can't change the policy yet, we're in the middle of an investigation. or We can't change that procedure or what we're doing because heaven forbid, you know, the investigation must finish first. And and then there's the other one where the investigations are the only impetus for change. But I think her point of view on this is really interesting, that from someone who's watched as a prosecutor, we need to put investigations in their correct place and to respond to them appropriately with the right energy to do.
0: So next up, Christy, we've got two articles from Compliance Week, one by Aaron Nicodemus and one by Kyle Brasser. And they both talk about the uh, Saturday Night Massacre, or I guess it was a Friday Night Massacre, of the uh, board of directors or the board of the PCAOB. And uh, basically, Trump's board was cleaned out by the Biden administration, Uh, The Securities and Exchange chair, Gary Gensler, fired all board members, including uh, board chair William Dunkey. Uh, this was probably long overdue. Dunkey had worked to literally eviscerate the PCAOB from its mission of oversight. Although it should be said, this has been a, um, very dysfunctional agency for quite some time. And Dunkey only added to that dysfunction. He didn't create it. And, uh, we found out yesterday in an article from Bloomberg that one of the former board members, John Rainey, uh, resigned because he had an affair with, uh, another employee there and a third party found out about that affair, hacked emails and got, uh, incriminating emails and threatened to blackmail Rainey. So, um, pretty interesting stuff. Nevertheless, the, uh, the firing will probably lead to four or three major changes. The first will be a stricter oversight of the big four. Um, The Project on Government Oversight, POGO, uh, for those older cartoon readers, uh, criticized the PCAOB in 2019 as doing a feeble job protecting investors. I can only agree with that. Uh, The transparency was uh, non-existent, a very opaque agency. So look for more increased transparency. And then finally, uh, a whistleblower program, it's uh, passed. Uh, the House and is, of course, stalled in the Republican-blocked Congress, but uh, expect to see a whistleblower program as well. Christy, back over to you. Yeah,
1: that one's going to be really interesting to watch as that all evolves. Uh, The fourth story that we've been following is titled Caremark and Caring About Carelessness, which is a blog post by Jeff Kaplan on the Conflicts of Ethics blog. So, It was a very interesting take from him. He was looking at, uh, from the lawyer perspective, about the opportunities for board of directors, um, for the members to be sued by shareholders for failing to manage the risk of climate change, which is really interesting. So he quotes a recent posting in the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance and explores how the Caremark Doctrine could be used in reference to environmental, social, and governance issues. Our big favorite ESG Uh, word lately. Um, So the Caremark doctrine establishes that directors basically are required to monitor risk appropriately. And if you fail to do that, they can be in big trouble, including legal trouble. So the law firm of Wachtell Lipton, which is a major New York law firm, um, was consulted basically and advised companies to prepare for regulatory and litigation challenges if they manufacture, sell, or finance Products that could be implicated in environmental harm. And when I think about the word implicated in environmental harm, that seems like a very large number of companies. Um, So Wachtel recommends that these companies that have exposure focus on robust disclosure. So we're back to our transparency word, right? Robust disclosure of climate related, economic and business risks. Essentially getting in front of those risks from a PR perspective. Uh, to practice this transparency, and as they described it, radical disclosure. Um, They think these companies should create a strategy for handling ESG-related watchdogs and NGO groups and, and shareholder activism groups and engage early, and to document risk management conversations and activities to prove that the issues were taken seriously. Later in our podcast, we'll talk about another take on this uh, issue, which is is really interesting. It's clearly coming to the forefront. And the article ends with a consideration of which specific doctrines of corporate governance would best be suited for a court considering whether a board member properly considered environmental and climate change in their decision making, whether that's duty of loyalty, duty of care, sub duties, etc., But I think from the non-lawyer perspective, it's really interesting to consider this duty of care uh, in two different ways because the way the article reads, it could be seen that they're talking about looking at climate change holistically and generally as part of the business risk and could also be seen as looking at the risk to the climate with specific initiatives. And those require different lenses. So I think if you are in this space it may be worth thinking about how your board is documenting its review of the environmental, social, and governance, but specifically environmental impact of major initiatives, but also potentially more globally in terms of how its business is operating.
0: So Christy, I learned a new term this week, uh, conflict due diligence. And this comes to us from Lawrence Heim, uh, fastly becoming one of the leading thought leaders in ESG, comes to us from his blog, PracticalESG.com. And he talked about uh, the need for conflict due diligence and that investors are uh, ex- beginning to expect and demand conflict due diligence. And conflict due diligence is due diligence started off around conflict minerals, but it's now expanded to high-risk, and conflict-affected areas. So uh, some of the terms involved include conflict or violent conflict. What does that mean? Uh, The deferring to government designations list. Obviously, the U.S. government has sanctions list, as well as um, other lists involved, uh, such as uh, agencies or groups such as the EU. And then my favorite, uh, responding to rapidly changing events, Uh, I often talk about conflict uh, um, change, or rather regime change, and why you need to be sensitive to that from the compliance perspective, Uh, but uh, this really emphasizes the need for due diligence in your supply chain, and if I could even expand it out a little bit, Christy, I see this as a key component of ESG going forward because sustainability is certainly a part of ESG, and many companies now are being uh, required either because they're US publicly listed companies or because their investors or institutional investors or private equity investors or even banks loaning them money are demanding more information about their sustainability. So uh, having conflict due diligence I think is going to be something that Becomes part of the broader supply chain due diligence. And for uh, the people we work with, Christy, I think it's going to be uh, necessary for them to take a much more robust look at uh, not simply who's in your supply chain, but performing some rigorous due diligence in uh, their supply chain. Do you uh, counsel clients on, on that or has that come up for Spark Consulting yet?
1: I think this is this is new. Um, I think that the the rapid evolution of, of ESG as this sort of subfield is fascinating. I mean, I think that particularly with respect to conflict minerals and, and awareness, like you said, of regime changes and how quickly that can affect things like uh, trade compliance and sanctions. I think that it's really the ecosystem of all of our third party review uh, just getting broader and deeper and more important. Um, and I think the biggest benefit of all of this is that it is a more cohesive and intelligent review that's being demanded and requested, and that we're seeing it evolve that way. But there's a lot of morass to get through before we get to the next step. I have an article titled, Can You Measure a Speak-Up Culture by the Number of Complaints? It is written by Martin Wonstrup of Sandvik, and it was in the FCPA blog. So Lonstrick tackles the perennial question of whether a higher number of complaints to the whistleblower hotline mean that the company has a good speak-up culture, which is in and of itself fairly uncontroversial at this point, I think, because there's so many empirical studies showing that higher levels of internal reporting correlate with better stock prices and higher employee engagement. But his take is a bit different. So in his article, he ponders whether paying attention to the number of reports, high or low, matter at all. And he begins with this idea that for many people that you know, the low number can give people overconfidence, that there aren't issues to report, while other people will take it to mean that um, people aren't reporting because they're afraid to. Um, and then he asks this experiment. He says, if there are 100 reports, we all know anyone who's been in compliance more than a day, that some of those reports will be specious, uh, vindictive, unimportant, wrong, incomplete, can't be followed up on. And he says, the big question we need to know is whether or not people are fixated on whether it, that the, the bad reports that came in are irrelevant. And I thought, what an interesting perspective. So he turns to the EU directive on whistleblowing, which I think is actually the crux of his story. It requires, of course, most larger public and private companies throughout Europe to have a whistleblower system in place, which historically was something that uh, many companies either resisted or that the cultures resisted more generally. So when I was trying to imagine this, of course, he is in, I believe he's in Denmark and Sandvik is headquartered in Sweden. um, And Thinking about those cultures specifically, if someone were to be negative about the imposition of a whistleblower system, it would be easy to fixate on the one or two bad reports that didn't matter or that were uninteresting. So what he's really telling us to do is to focus leadership on proactively championing the whistleblower system to praise reporter bravery and to not be bothered so much by the few unimportant reports. So rather than worrying about the resources dedicated to this thing that sometimes some of these managers might not want or might not find useful, the real answer is to be playing a positive commitment of leadership and to positively focus on the brave reporters who do in fact make that difference. Tom.
0: So next up a article from our good colleague and friend, uh, Mike Bolkoff. And he wrote about uh, the indictment of two former uh, diplomats from Chad who took a $2 million bribe, as always, found in Corruption Crime and Compliance. And this is an example, once again, of uh, the Department of Justice using laws other than the FCPA to go after the bribe receivers since the FCPA is a supply side law focusing only, only on the bribe giver. So uh, these two, uh, husband and wife, actually, um, um, had the idiocy to accept bribes in the United States, thereby creating U.S. in personum jurisdiction. Uh, The indictments were released, uh, I think, uh, earlier this month or late last month, and they are still at large. But really, for me, Christy, this shows uh, that the U.S. government is focusing on individuals, they're focusing on going after the bribe receivers, usually via a money laundering uh, uh, law violation. Uh, hopefully, that will be remedied by the Crook Act. Uh, but the DOJ is is using all of the tools it it has in its arsenal to uh, help fight bribery and corruption, and going uh, against and indicting. Uh, even if they can't get jurisdiction over them uh, to get them extradited yet uh, to former Chad uh, diplomats for accepting bribes from a U.S. company or rather a Canadian company in violation of the FCPA is certainly a positive step. And what do you have for us next?
1: Um, I have something fantastic next, but I do want to to comment on that. I mean, I think that one of my favorite quotes ever that came out of the DOJ is, you know, People, when people see other people go to jail, they don't see a company go to jail. That, that's not a thing you see. So that ability to make it personal is so critical to our work. Um, and I think that it really shows that, you know, in making an organization wrong is one thing, but if you don't have any individual accountability, it's, it's a lot harder to tell people individually that they may be held accountable. Uh, what do you think about that, Tom?
0: Absolutely, Uh, absolutely. And if we can get, you know, the bad guys who are accepting these bribes um, indicted and in jail in the United States, hopefully that could start to deter some of this behavior.
1: Hundred percent. So that leads us back to our Caremark. Do you care? So story number eight is titled "Our Compliance Violation Smoking Guns Hiding in Board Minutes," and this comes to us from Terry Quimby. Who is an attorney and former state regulator in Michigan? And it's printed in Compliance Cosmos. I really liked this article. This may have been my, the most interesting one I read this week. Um, it revisits the theme of this Caremark duty of care doctrine, this time viewing it as how board minutes prove or disprove that an important compliance topic was covered at the board meeting. So when thinking about creating board minutes and creating board agendas, looking at whether or not your compliance concerns are properly captured. Um, So Quimby notes that board meetings are uh, being, board meeting minutes are often key pieces of evidence in shareholder derivative lawsuits and judges heavily rely on them as evidence. So she wants us to really think about the fact that what's in them is as important as what is not in them. So she made her point by showing us the example of two very different cases that had come out. So the first was related to Bluebell Creamery, which at the time when the decision came down was the largest ever criminal penalty for a food safety violation. So Bluebell had known for years that they had food safety issues, Um, It was their only major compliance risk, and they couldn't possibly say they weren't aware of it. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration directly reported its concerns to the CEO of the company before it all went wrong. So they certainly knew they had a history of this, but there was no history of any board oversight whatsoever. And then in 2015, Listeria broke out and it caused recalls. Plant pauses the deaths of three people and hundreds of sick folks. Right. So the fact of the matter was, when the shareholder derivative suit came to light and they asked for the board minutes, there was no oversight committee. There was nobody who was reporting regularly on food safety. And the government said, "You got to be kidding me. You have a duty of care to be looking at the risks to this company. That's the number one compliance risk. Forget it. Seventeen million dollar fine." That was juxtaposed with the second case, which they were looking at the behavior by Disney, which was alleged to be anti-competitive in its acquisition of Pixar. So in that case, the Ninth Circuit reviewed the board meeting minutes and they showed adequate consideration of the relevant issues. They did not see any anti-competitive behavior and the board members proved their fulfillment of their duty of care based on what was in those board meeting minutes. So Quimby says it's really important to think about making sure that you're documenting that the proper consideration has been given to these compliance and more more frequently now, ESG related issues, that we get those things written down in our agenda, especially because the agendas frequently are what uh, the meeting minutes are built off of, and to ensure that board members actually do adopt those meeting minutes and understand that what's in them could produce long-term outcomes for them and for the perception of compliance at the company.
0: So uh, continuing our theme of the board, I came across a really interesting article uh, about uh, rather by Reshmi Paul and Frank McLean in Compensation in Context, a first time uh, contributor to this week in FCPA, uh, uh, entitled, Do You Need a People Committee on Your Board? And what intrigued me, Christy, was typically when I read a title like that, I I think that uh, someone's probably going to talk about um, way too much fluffy, uh, (laughs) feel-good type uh, ideas. But when I read it, it really made a lot of sense Um, because the things they uh, said that a people committee would do were, number one, CEO succession, number two, driving cultural accountability, number three, shaping the workforce of the future. And the more I thought about those three, they're almost common sense to me. But more importantly, um, if they're left to the audit committee or, heaven forbid, the full board, then uh, they might get shoved down to uh, really lesser status. Uh, CEO succession is not something that you decide, uh, well, in 30 days, we're going to have a new CEO or 60 days. That's a five-term, five-year long-term plan uh, that every company should be uh, uh, working on, including the current sitting CEO. So uh, having that a committee focused on these is- issues and then uh, prob- probably from our perspective, driving cultural accountability, uh, nothing could be more important from the board perspective uh, for compliance than cultural accountability and corporate culture. So to have a board committee focused on that, I think, really would help the chief compliance officer certainly enhance uh, ethics and compliance within an organization. And then shaping the workforce of the future, um, equally important, Uh, obviously um, uh, millennials um, and uh, the next generation coming into the workforce could be very different and the workplace will be very different. And so having um, a board committee focusing on long-term strategic initiatives to uh, shape the workforce, I think, is almost a common sense um, uh, approach because, I mean, even the World Economic Forum estimates that the cost of reskilling an employee is almost $25,000. So if you're going to change how you do work, whether that's um, a virtual work environment, whether it's a hybrid work environment, whether you've redesigned your office uh, around the new realities of uh, a much more virtual interaction with your customers and other stakeholders. Um, I think that companies really need to think about that, uh, almost do a gap analysis to see where they may have uh, gaps And then uh, move forward to to fill those in. And and I circle back to saying that I think both Rashmi Paul and uh, Jeff McLean have come on or or struck something here uh, that your board does need a people committee and having a committee which focuses on these issues uh, from CEO succession to culture to the workforce of the future really makes a lot of sense. Do you have any thoughts on that from from your perspective, Christy?
1: I think that's fascinating. I I really like that idea. Um, I think that you're right, that millennial and uh, Generation Z, or as we call it in Britain, Generation Z, um, come more and more into the fore. There's definitely more of an egalitarian sensibility from how they view hierarchical interaction. And I think that this is a direct um, reflection of that, um, and that sort of sensibility of people wanting to have uh, control, but also the ability to you know have their their voices heard. And I think that um, that's a really interesting model, almost of like a, a a much less powerful version of a works council or of a union even. that idea of having representatives for really important decisions um, in a in a non-formal way. That's a really interesting idea that I like.
0: Well, Chrissy, we're to the point of our podcast where we talk about uh, other podcasts and events. Uh, I am extraordinarily pleased to announce that on my uh, podcast. 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. Richard Lummis and I are going on a 10-part exploration of uh, Plutarch's lives. Uh, For those of you who don't know what Plutarch's lives is, it's a biography written by the Roman Plutarch in the first century AD where he compared, or third century, I think, excuse me, he compared the lives of Greeks and Romans and contrasted them. It's a fabulous book of history. It's a fabulous book of biographies something I wanted to do for some time. And we're going to look at 10 of those lives, both from the Greek and Roman perspective, and try to mine them for uh, business leadership lessons uh, in the modern world. It'll be over 10 weeks every Thursday, starting yesterday. Uh, in episode one, we looked at uh, the Greek Themistocles and the Roman Camillus. Uh, it's summer, so that means trekking through compliance is back, yes, I have reviewed all 79 episodes of Star Trek, the original series. I started June 1. They go up every day at 3 p.m., including weekends, on the Compliance Podcast Network. Over the past week, we've had MUDS Women, What Are Little Girls Made Of?, Miri, Dagger of the Mind, one of the most troubling uh, of Star Trek, and the Corbermite Maneuver, uh, one of the most fun. Uh, AB InBev is back with another uh, Compliance Open House on June 15th at 10 a.m., on the topic of collaboration framework for democratizing compliance analytics. Where we are and what's next, Uh, Matt Galvin uh, will be leading that effort. On July 1, K2 Integrity, Seneza Gabauer, and Darren Matthews will present a webinar on asset tracing at the IBA Global Influencing Forum. You can get, uh, we link to details and registration for that. And then finally, what's the role of compliance in managing ESG initiatives? It's something I've certainly been interested in and have written about it extensively. Well, if you'd like more information, join Conversant's Global Forum to learn what's ahead for ESG and what you should be thinking about now as uh, the Biden administration moves forward with greater regulations. Uh, It's on June 16th at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. I have linked to registration and information in the show notes. Uh, Christy, this is typically the part of the podcast where I get to talk about my upcoming book, The Compliance Handbook, second edition, but it turns out you have a book coming out this month, so I'm excited to uh, hear about your book. I know a little bit about it, but why don't you tell us about uh, about your book and where our listeners might be able to go uh, to either pre-sale or when it comes out?
1: Absolutely, 100%. So, We wrote, so we, by me, I mean I and uh, Kirsten Liston and uh, the godfather of compliance, Joe Murphy, wrote uh, the Compliance Entrepreneur's Handbook, and it's about the tools and tricks people need to take their killer idea and make it into a real business. Um, Kirsten, Joe, and I are consistently asked about transitioning from that in-house world um, into having a consulting business, a product business, a technology business, training software, all kinds of different ways of doing it. And we finally decided it was time for a book dedicated to how to do that in our fast-growing industry. So it's a fun book. It's a good read. It's got great exercises. And it's one that I am uh, had so much fun writing. It's currently available for pre-order on Amazon, either in Kindle or in um, hardcover. It can be pre-ordered at bookstores now as well. And it comes out, its publication date is June twenty.
0: 20- well, Christy, the only thing I would have to add to that is I wish you had written that uh, a few years back uh, when I was trying to come up with uh, the Compliance Podcast Network. I certainly could have used it.
1: Oh, me Um, too. I could have used it. Let me tell you.
0: (laughs) This has been a ton of fun. Uh, I hope I have the opportunity to ask you uh, to come back in the future. And on that note, you want to uh, take us home?
1: Thanks so much. Have a fabulous week, everybody. Take care.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCP. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay at JayRosen at AffiliatedMonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, talk about upcoming webinars, and review key podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, which premiered for the week. Thanks again for listening.